0: It's a rare but devastating muscular disease that afflicts children from birth, but a worldwide collaboration of doctors, including one local expert, are seeing encouraging results from an effective gene therapy they've developed to treat it. therapeutic
1: responsiveness has been... Excellent. Children that have been treated have been highly responsive to the treatment. Where I have seen the results, they have been highly promising.
0: We continue with our new segment on clinical trials.
2: Clinical trials is really about all of us.
1: Research, just
0: like government, is
3: by the people, for the people, and of the people.
0: And later, we'll focus our CTSI on the suicide burden and efforts to prevent suicide in our community.
4: One of the things that makes suicide such a major public health issue is that it's completely preventable thing. And so framing it as a public health issue allows for that conversation around prevention.
0: It's all inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Bellmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Fratert Hospital. Blood Center of Wisconsin and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. The key to successful team science is drawing upon the knowledge and expertise of many individuals in order to advance research and findings through collaboration. Recently, we had the opportunity to speak with one local leader of a collaboration that's found an effective gene therapy in treating a rare and devastating muscular disease in children. And today, you'll hear about their amazing discovery through team science. Dr. Michael Lawler is associate professor, Department of Pathology, and a member of the Neuroscience Research Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. He's also a key member of a worldwide collaboration focused on fighting a condition known as X-linked myotubular myopathy, also referred to as XLMTM. Our conversation begins with Dr. Lawler explaining what this disease is.
1: X-linked myotubular myopathy is a severe congenital muscle disease that affects children born with the absence of a protein called myotubularin, important for the appropriate building of muscle to begin with, so it can contract and the relaying of signals that the muscle needs to contract.
0: He further explains that it's caused by a genetic mutation. It's a
1: genetically defined disease. Related Related to mutations in the MTM1 gene that encodes myotubularin. And so if you have an MTM1 mutation, then you have X-linked myotubular myopathy.
0: Without the essential myotubularin protein, these babies are born very,
1: very weak, very, very floppy. Usually can't breathe well without support. They're very, very severely
0: affected. What exactly is the function of myotubularin protein in a healthy body? So
1: There's a number of things. It can be involved in trafficking portions of the cell around communicating within the cell. It also seems to be involved with the organization of a structure called the triad, and this is a structure that takes the electrical signals that are on the surface of the muscle cell that are telling it to contract, and it translates it to the organelles within the cell that release the calcium that's needed to actually produce muscle contraction. And so when myotubularin's gone, these structures don't form, and this process is markedly impaired.
0: How and when is XLMTM typically detected? Dr. Lawler says once the baby is born...
1: You have a very, very weak child, essentially from the time of birth. Sometimes these children get genetic testing very early in life. Sometimes they receive muscle biopsy. The clinical look of the disease is very severe, but also similar across a number of genetic causes. So you need genetic confirmation to be sure that you're really dealing with this.
0: The baby's mother is the carrier of this genetic mutation.
1: The father only has one X chromosome. So if he's got the mutation, then he's got myotubular myopathy. So it's always got to be the mother. Or you have a new mutation that isn't in the mother, what they call a de novo mutation, that just happens to show up in the embryo. And so when you test the mother to see if it was a carrier or one of these de novo situations.
0: Either way, a child born with X-linked myotubular myopathy faces a lifetime of severe physical challenges.
1: The vast majority of these patients, I'd say well over 90%, are very severely impaired. I mean, I've met Three patients ever with myotubiliarin mutations that are capable of walking. And I've met many, many more than three.
0: There's other issues that can accompany XLMTM adding to the challenges of day-to-day life. You're
1: dealing with problems that patients with any kind of muscle disease would have. Catching a cold and being unable to cough sufficiently to clear it. Respiratory affections, and issues related to feeding in some cases, and things like that.
0: As far as gender, this is a disease that affects...
1: Almost entirely only males. It's possible for a female carrier to manifest some level of symptoms and maybe in one or two cases it's been similar in severity to essentially what all the boys experienced but it's a very phenomenally rare situation.
0: Dr. Lawler says even in boys, XLMTM is rare.
1: It's reported at about one to 50,000 males. It seems like even less common than that. Since I've been operating in Milwaukee, we've diagnosed two patients over the past seven years.
0: On top of its rarity, the life expectancy of a child born with the disease isn't too promising.
1: About half of them die of their disease, even with supportive measures in about the first 12 to 18, months of life. And then the ones that get past that window, it's tremendously variable. So it's very uncommon for these kids to get out of their teens and it's relatively uncommon for many of them to get to their teens.
0: But here's where the story offers hope, because Dr. Lawler is part of an international collaboration researching gene therapies to treat X-linked myotubular myopathy. I
1: was lucky to fall in with Alan Begg's lab at Children's Hospital in Boston. He's one of the key geneticists in this field, and then a woman named Anna Bouchbello in France, and then two guys, Casey Childers and David Mack, currently at the University of Washington, and we also collaborated extensively with a company called Audentes Therapeutics that was founded on gene therapy work in tubular myopathy that we had worked together to do.
0: He says each brings an area of expertise to a relatively small area of medical research. The
1: muscle disease field is a relatively small field representing a lot of children with a lot of problems and it's not necessarily the level of representation that you'd see in cancer or Alzheimer's disease. Neuropathology is my area of specialization. There's only a few of us working in muscle disease.
0: The collaboration has been conducting research on animal models with myotubularin deficiency for a number of years now.
1: The animals looked a lot like the humans on the pathological side and they also were quite weak. So when you have this situation where the animal model looks a lot like the human disease that's a really good opportunity for treatment
0: and development. But Dr. Lawler points out that even the most comparable animal models present challenges.
1: underestimate how different animal models can be from human diseases. Even if you recapitulate all of the same genetic problems, it's possible for animals to be much more resilient than humans. And in that case, testing your treatment is really hampered by your inability to distinguish whether or not the animals have a real problem with their disease. In this case, the animals looked a lot like the disease, and so we were able to take unsuccessful therapeutic options off the list of options relatively
0: quickly. After some unsuccessful treatments, the collaboration began treating XLMTM in the animal models with a successful gene therapy.
1: Because myotubularin did so many things and was involved in so many crucial processes, the only real option here was to reintroduce myotubularin in some way that really focused us in on gene therapy at a time where people weren't gung-ho about gene therapy because regulatory challenges, a variety of other things, people thought would be difficult to surmount but our main shot was restoring myotubularin because when we tried workarounds and quick fixes they weren't effective at all.
0: Eventually, the research team found particular success implementing targeted myotubularin protein replacement in canines. The
1: canine studies were really important. These weren't dogs that were engineered with myotubular myopathy. These were dogs that happened to be born with myotubular myopathy that we were then able to identify as a resource for treatment testing. The key thing that made the dog work necessary, though, was that the group in France was getting really good results in mice, but because it's very well known that mice tolerate a lot that humans don't, especially in relation to gene therapy, there needed to be a larger animal model test before anybody was going to be comfortable moving forward in humans.
0: As always, testing was highly controlled and regulated.
1: The regulatory environment and the safety concerns are very significant and real. It was really necessary to field test these gene therapy approaches and establish that they still looked safe when we got closer to a larger human-sized animal. And in doing that, we were able to establish a number of really important questions that were key for the FDA giving permission to go forward into humans.
0: Which is where his team's research is today.
1: The first clinical trial for AAV gene therapy has been in progress for nine months called aspiro. And the results so far? The therapeutic responsiveness has been excellent. Children that have been treated have been highly responsive to the treatment. They've gained motor milestones, significant function. Some of them are off of ventilatory support at this point. They're able to communicate with the parents in a way that they never have been able to before. Where I have seen the results, they've been highly promising.
0: But still mixed with cautious optimism.
1: So at the earliest dose in that trial, the presence of immunological response thankfully have been well managed so far. All of us are going on a patient-by-patient basis to understand what's going on, but the benefits are extraordinary from what we've seen so far.
0: So what is Dr. Lawler most excited about from these early results in humans?
1: The fact that it seems to be doing something even at our lowest doses. I mean, we have made the decisions on the dosing based on our best predictions from the animal work. Certainly the idea that we are already at a significant level of benefit in our earliest patients is very promising, and we hope that things will continue to get better.
0: While this research and clinical trial is primarily funded by Audentus Therapeutics, a San Francisco-based company focused on developing and commercializing gene therapy products, Dr. Lawler tells us that earlier research he's done has been supported by the CTSI
1: a number of places that a young investigator can get money to try out new ideas, and the CTSI has certainly helped me out a lot with that. It's really important to not get stuck in a single direction, and so the CTSI has really been instrumental in allowing me to get those other more academic elements of the lab supported and running parallel with this work.
0: Next, we learn that Dr. Lawler's work is largely inspired by a childhood friendship. He shared this story recently when he was the keynote speaker at the Imagine More Dinner for the Medical College of Wisconsin's Neuroscience Research Center.
1: There's a reason that I work on muscle diseases, and that's this guy right here, and his name's Peter Tucker. Peter and I grew up together since about the age of 10. I wasn't the most athletic 10-year-old boy, so the fact that Peter was already in a wheelchair didn't really affect what we were doing all that much. So, I did certainly notice as we got older, he was able to do less and less. His family was just heroic through the whole process. Loving family, doing regular family things. You have a child that can't move around as much, but cognitively intact and ready to play. Since I met Peter, I became more and more motivated to become involved in muscle disease communities. So, one child with the disease, living his life as well as he could, inspired a level of involvement across a number of children that have similar disorders. And watching the challenges these families faced and the bravery with which they faced it really compelled me to work on muscle diseases as I progressed in my clinical training.
0: Back to our conversation, he says over time, he watched as Peter's condition worsened
1: the course of years, especially after I went away to college, I was watching him deteriorate even further and of course he was more and more frustrated with his inability to do things that he had always been able to do and became a very poignant example of the fact that this was a relentless thing that they couldn't stop.
0: And eventually his friend lost his battle which only fueled Dr. Lawler's determination. He
1: passed away when I was in medical school. Yeah, as a medical student, I was always very interested in something for a couple of weeks and then couldn't envision doing it for 30 more years. And it really came back to this muscle disease thing. You know, I knew that this was a problem that I was always going to think was important. Even if I spent my career trying to develop something for this and nothing came of it, at least it would be time and effort well spent. That's an understatement.
0: I asked him what he thinks Peter would say about his team's research today.
1: I think he'd be happy. I think he'd wonder what took so long. <laughs> you know, for most of my childhood, I kind of operated under the assumption that somebody else was going to fix Peter's problem and that nobody did.
0: Today, he and his fellow researchers are fixing children like Peter.
1: People have traditionally thought they were about 10 years away from doing something significant in these diseases treatment-wise for the past 20 or 30 years. It's an exciting time to be doing what we're doing. There's certainly lessons to be learned that we have to try in people, but giving a kid the ability to move and play is a goal worth pursuing and figuring out. It
0: is indeed. Our thanks to Dr. Michael Lawler for sharing his research and story with us today last show, we launched a new segment focusing our CTSI on clinical trials. But before we look at individual trials, we'll first answer some common questions about clinical trials. Here's part two of our interview with Dr. James Thomas, Medical Director of the Cancer Clinical Trials Office, Associate Director Translational Research and Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology and Oncology at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and Dr. Amit Goday, Administrative Director of the CTSI's Clinical Trials Office. Let's turn it over to Kayla Pierce, who shares their insights. Kayla?
5: Thanks, Brian. We pick up with both doctors addressing one of the biggest concerns in clinical trials, protecting the privacy of participants. Dr. Amit Goday.
3: We take privacy very seriously. That's probably number one concern that anyone has. We are required by the FDA to always store documents and electronic medical records behind locked doors, with limited access, only people who have something directly related to that study will have access to that data. The entire research community is
5: really devoted
3: towards protecting information as well as having ethical safeguards.
5: Dr. James Thomas.
2: You go back 50, 60, 70 years, there were clinical trials where patients were not well-informed or the rights of the patients were not well-preserved. So nowadays, before any clinical trial gets opened or gets started, it has to undergo both scientific review to make sure that they're going to be able to get the answers that they they want. But then also it goes to what's called the IRB, the Institutional Review Board, which looks at the risks to the patients and we have to make sure that their rights are protected even with their eagerness potentially to participate in a clinical trial.
5: But while your rights and privacy are protected, there can still be risks in participating.
2: There are always risks associated with
3: participation. Now the extent and the severity of the risk varies greatly, but all of that should be very clearly mentioned in the consent form.
2: The risk will depend on the type of trial and the type of treatment. The cat For people with cancer whose lives are eminently threatened by it, they're willing to entertain a little bit more risk than someone who maybe has tennis elbow and looking at a clinical trial. So the risk will vary according to the type of diseases.
5: When you're part of a clinical trial, where do you actually go to participate?
2: We have done trials in which we go out to the community
3: health office. We've even done trials in which we visit people's homes. And of course, the typical one is the patients come over to a medical institution and we do it in
2: a clinic setting, medical centers are places where the highest concentration of clinical trials are taking place. But certainly in cancer, the expectation in the culture is actually that there are some clinical trials that take place in a much broader reach in the community. And so cancer doctors in the community participate in some of the bigger clinical trials, what we call phase three trials, where at an academic center like ours, there's both those large countrywide multi-institution trials, but also, again, specialized trials, more complicated trials that would only take place in a
5: You're probably wondering, who pays for clinical trials? Here's the good news it's not the participants.
2: There are some clinical trials that are funded by grants from the federal government or from private foundations. There's some clinical trials that are sponsored by industry and then there's also individual philanthropy and there's internally funded. So a lot of times we have pilot projects that are funded by philanthropy to the medical college or to the hospital that helps take those early ideas to get that initial information to see whether the idea is any good before it can go on to become a broader clinical trial. There
3: are several mechanisms federal government, so that's the NIH and all the institutes of the NIH, each have their own funding mechanisms. Institutional resources are also available. At medical college, there are several ways you could get funded. The CTSI happens to be one of the mechanisms where we have pilot awards. The departments themselves may fund some trials, as well as the other side, which is the non-governmental side, where we have the big pharma companies, and they might sponsor the trials to be conducted all across the country.
5: So what exactly is the mission of the Clinical Trials Office at the Medical College of Wisconsin? Our first mission
3: is to provide all the resources that investigators or clinical research teams might need to conduct research at MCW or its partners. And the second mission is to make this information available to potential participants out in the community. What clinical trials are available and how the clinical trials mechanism actually benefits the general population.
2: Our goal is to add knowledge. We take the ideas of our faculty and do our part to try to develop new treatments, new strategies, new devices, so that people with illnesses and diseases can be better treated. That is really our reason for getting up in the morning. Do our part to continue to advance medicine.
5: And where can you go to learn more about clinical trials right here in our community?
2: The Freidert website, if people go to the Cancer Center for example, there's a page devoted to clinical trials that are here at the Cancer Center, and it's in an easily searchable format as far as what disease you have, and then also the contact information to try and find out more and see if one might be interested in participating.
3: If you go to our website, cto.mcw.edu, there's a section called Find a Clinical Trial. There you can go and look at every trial. Trial that's active at MCW and its partners as well as search by condition or by the name of the doctor if you know that. Or pick up the phone and give us a call. 414-805-1555 i will be more than happy to answer any questions that anyone has.
5: Finally, Dr. Thomas and Dr. Godet want you to know...
2: That we're all in this together, right? The clinical trials is really about all of us. It's not just the physicians or the investigators. And I think people should be commended for participating and should really seek out these type of opportunities. Research,
3: just like government, is by the people, for the people, and of the people. They really are the benefactors of any research that's done.
5: We'll be sure to post links on our CTSI website along with the the podcast of this show.
0: Thanks, Kayla. Finally today, given the recent deaths of two popular public figures, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, suicide has been at the forefront of news coverage in recent weeks. Therefore, it's timely to discuss this sensitive issue in our own community. To gain insight and perspective, we reached out to Sarah Kolbeck, Assistant Director of the Comprehensive Injury Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Sarah and the CIC have done extensive research on the suicide burden in our community and throughout our state. And she says these high-profile deaths impact our society.
4: There's been these sort of high-profile suicides, and it draws people's attention to the issue, which is good, but it's important to remember that this is happening all the time.
0: And while not as common as other causes of death, suicide is in fact a significant public health issue here in our Southeast Wisconsin community and across our state.
4: I would say it is. I mean, suicide as a phenomenon that leads to mortality is relatively rare. However, one of the things that make it such a major public health issue is that it's completely preventable thing. And so framing it as a public health issue allows for that conversation around prevention.
0: How does our state's suicide rate compare with the national rate?
4: The state of Wisconsin's rate is a little bit higher than the national rate from 2016. The US rate was around 13.9 per 100,000 population and the state of Wisconsin's was 14.9 per 100,000. So it has been in the last several years trending a bit higher than the national rate, unfortunately.
0: So who in our community tends to more commonly exhibit suicidal behavior? Sarah says research provides a clearer picture based on several demographic factors. Including age?
4: In past years, the rates were quite high among younger folks, 18 to 24-year-old. The last couple years of data that we have is showing that it's more middle-aged folks. 35 to 60 is typically where the highest rates are in terms of age. And then actually over age 85 is where there are higher rates. But that middle-aged population is one that seems to carry the higher burden. Gender? Males, for sure. The data shows that males carry the highest burden. However, the CDC's vital statistics report showing that females are starting to trend much higher. So that's a disturbing trend that folks are starting to look at. What about race? Suicide's typically known as a white male issue. However, we do know that suicidal ideation and thoughts of suicide are expressed very differently among racial groups. So what looks like suicidal behavior in a white male may look different in a black male or a black female. Something interesting that our center has been doing is looking at what's called undetermined deaths of violent intent to see if there are perhaps suicide masked in that group it might lead to a discovery of more suicide deaths in some racial groups that typically aren't thought of as having a higher burden of suicide.
0: Is this demographic data consistent with national findings or are there anomalies in our community's suicide data? I
4: guess the one thing that I would point out is that there is a high burden among American Indian populations in Wisconsin. I think in states where there are other larger American Indian populations, that is also the case. But I think the American Indian population here has a high burden.
0: Another notable community affected by suicide, military veterans. How significant is the suicide burden among the veteran community?
4: It is an issue and we have partnerships with the VA to work on that. But unfortunately, because of things like PTSD, coupled with having firearms, it's kind of a lethal combination, unfortunately. I'm working on a project with Fond du Lac County that is targeting veteran suicide specifically. Uh, I think they had nine suicides among middle-aged men last year and five of them were veterans. So over half of the suicides were among veterans.
0: Next, our conversation turns toward looking at common stressors or factors leading to suicide. A few in particular stand out.
4: One major thing is isolation. They may not be quite as social or even willing to reach out and talk to people about you know, their feelings of leading to that isolation. Some of the other things, losing a spouse, loss of a job, trouble with the law. Typically men that have had OWIs, they get two or three, and that tends to increase risk for suicide, especially in that middle-aged male demographic.
0: What about the impact of social media? Do things like cyberbullying factor into our suicide burden?
4: I think it does, especially among younger people that are really using social media often and may not be necessarily thinking about the consequences. It's very easy to sort of put something out there without thinking and then it's there. NPR had a piece on social media and young people and how it's isolating and it's potentially leading to more suicides. Last year, there were several suicides in the community and social media had played a part in that as well. So I think that definitely plays into it.
0: How does the suicide rate in our southeastern Wisconsin community compare with other areas of our state.
4: We look at the rates in the state of Wisconsin in particular, the burden isn't highest in this part of the state. In fact, it's higher in more rural areas, northeastern Wisconsin, kind of in that northeastern quadrant of the state. So in terms of southeastern Wisconsin, it's really not as high as it is in other areas. The population in other parts of the state is quite a bit lower than it is here. So if you have several suicides where there's a smaller population, the rate per 100,000 will be a little bit higher. Obviously, with homicides and other violent deaths, that's very different. But in terms of suicides, it's a bit lower.
0: And in addition to the suicide rate in our community, Sarah says the issue of even contemplating suicide is Equally concerning.
4: We know that for every person that completes a suicide, there are several people that are contemplating it and you know, even making a plan. There's that spectrum of you know thinking about it, considering it, making a plan, and then completing. And a circle gets a little bit smaller with each, but that burden is very large in the community for people that are contemplating suicide.
0: Which means the need to focus on suicide prevention is critical. And in many cases, even asking a simple question can save a life if you concerned about someone having suicidal thoughts.
4: One of the issues that we have is educating lay people to ask a question. You sit down, look them in the face, and just ask, are you thinking about killing yourself? They may not even need to respond. You might see their face change, and then you need to know what to do about that. You don't have to have an MD or a PhD to do this. So I think connecting those dots in the community is really important. But
0: what do you do if you or someone else is in a suicide crisis situation?
4: If somebody's in crisis situation, we suggest taking them to the emergency department or calling that person's physician. Physicians are allowed to receive information about their patient.
0: If you want to learn more about how to look for signs of suicide,
4: there's a really great coalition in Milwaukee. It's called Prevent Suicide Greater Milwaukee that is doing a lot of work around educating folks on what's called QPR. It's question, persuade, refer that teaches people how to sort of identify signs of potential suicidality. There's a lot of really good work that's being done around there right now.
0: Plus, there's lots of other resources available.
4: Prevent Suicide Wisconsin is the statewide Suicide Prevention Coalition, and then Mental Health America of Wisconsin. The other one is Hopeline, it's a texting service. A lot of teens actually have used this, and it's free.
0: We'll be sure to post links on our CTSI website, along with the podcast of this show. (laughs) But for now, we've reached the end for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Michael Lawler, Dr. James Thomas, Dr. Amit Godet, and Sarah Kolbeck. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show. And I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer. wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. And remember, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio the CTSI in this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.